0: You go, oh, you want to get up with me? You're funny. Father God, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you that you're coming again. We thank you that your kingdom is coming. And as we're setting a a season, a a dispensation of your season, um, of your kingdom, the millennial kingdom, I just pray that you, Holy Spirit, would lead us, teach us, give us insight, give us good discussion. We thank you for the opportunity to look at this and to look at the different views. Uh, As we look at post-millennialism tonight, I just pray that uh, you'd guide the conversation. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, we're pretty familiar with Revelation 21 through 6. It's the uh, binding of, of Satan for a thousand years, the reign of Christ for a thousand years with the uh, saints of all of martyrdom, um, f- who died for their faith, right? And the the futurist or the literist view is a it's a literal thousand year reign. And then last week we looked at the Amill view, which are the inaugurated millennium view. Um, we explored that. Um, Amills typically are preterists, meaning they think that. Revelation, the majority of Revelation has already been fulfilled, Um, and then today we're going to look at postmillennialism, and they're preterists as well. I would say they're more strictly preterists than um, our mills are, and uh, so we're going to look at what postmillennial view is today. So what is that view, and we're going to go over the different lenses that help cause them to form that view, and then their argument, and then we'll discuss why i think they're wrong no <laughs> okay so post-millennialism sees the thousand years as a definite time period um not as a definite time period so they see it as a a reign but it talks about the the fullness a symbol of the fullness of the kingdom of god so again uh they would say that's their argument, very similar to the R. Mill, that it's the natural reading of the text is to take it as a symbol rather than a literal thousand years. Uh, they see the church through uh, evangelism and Christian influence on society creating the effects of the millennial age, at which point Christ will return with a great right throne judgment and usher in the eternal state. So that's like the summary of. Uh, postmillennialism. millennialism. Um, any thoughts or questions on that? I mean, it's just, I've tried to make it as succinct as possible um, for us. How long has it been yeah, we're going to get to that. Okay. Um, there's debate on origins. The obviously, the people who favor post want to see it back in the church fathers, um, but then they claim the same church fathers believe in post-millennialism as the amillennialists. So they inaugurated <laughs> the inaugurated illuminists. luminous. They claim the same fathers. And so it's like, well, what did they really believe? Um, I think those fathers, as we read the other week, are, are probably more amill in their language than post-mill in their language. But um, both of them see it as an inaugurated kingdom, right? Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. Uh, an r male sees them more as reigning in heaven, a spiritual, um, and a post-mill sees God's kingdom being physically manifested on earth through the work of salvation, um, through evangelism, through converts. Um, and it's hard to say which, I mean, I, no early church father totally articulated that. Does that make sense? What was your question? Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, if it comes back, we'll, we'll pick okay. it up again. Do they not see it as a definite time period? It's so it's not a definite... Because it's been over a thousand years and they don't... Have no, time. no. Th- well, they don't see it as a definite time period because they just see that it's... So those two types, those ones that see no time period, like w- when when the whole earth becomes cavorted, becomes Christianized, basically, mm-hmm. then Christ will rep- will return. So those would be the symbolic ones. The other ones would be that um, that uh, that the all earth would be Christianized, right? And that, well, Christ would return, and then they go into the eternal state, so just right into it. Those the other people who actually do believe in a literal thousand years, um, but that, you know, the eternal state will happen and it will last for a thousand years, and Christ will return. Mm-hmm. Um, so... And I don't know how that that position is not at all scripturally tenable, in my opinion, because it's Christ that's reigning. Right. So but they would just argue that he's reigning through his church. Um, so some some characters that are famous for this and we'll get to that. So this is kind of like a little graph. So postmillennialism um, is Christ comes after the millennium. That's why it says post. Right. But the church age is the millennium. It's the church age ushers in the millennium or, or creates the, the the eternal state. And those and and it like Amel, there's one resurrection, okay, the just the resurrection of the good and the bad at the same time, okay? Um and that would be the great white throne judgment, okay? So Christ returns after the symbolic millennial. Mm. Yes. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yep. Any other questions, clarifications? Okay, so uh, there's debate concerning its roots in the early church fathers. Uh, They often claim the same church fathers as all millennialists. So um, my reading of the early church fathers, I feel uh, probably leans more towards the R-mill position. Um, But again, um, they read post-mill into that. In history, the 12th century writer, um, his name, uh, Joachim uh, of Fiore, was among the first uh, genuine post-millennialists in the 12th century. So pretty late development. And then Daniel Whitby in the late 17th century popularized this view for our modern day. And also some of our Puritans and Jonathan Edwards, those guys, those guys we like, right? They're post-millennialists. Um, a lot of the Puritans that came over on the Mayflower uh, to found, our, and you know, were p- influential in, in building our country, they were post-millennialists, meaning they're looking to bring God's kingdom on earth. And that would probably be one of the weaknesses of post-millennialism is to take matters into their own hands, right? So rather than maybe evangelizing through you know uh, sacrifice and love right we evangelize with the sword right like Muslims do yeah yeah so let's think about the lenses that shape post-millennial interpretation and so you know we were talking about a couple so they share some lens, one lens, I would say, with, uh, with our millennialism, and that is... And historically, post-mill and our mills were kind of just packaged together. It wasn't until modern scholarship that they liked the Bible. Um, but, uh, but they hold two things. One, this, the one on the interpretation of prophecy in common um, with using prioritizing metaphor and symbol over literal, right? And usually, like Bill said last week, it's both. you got to have both in there, right? And something can be metaphorical and still have a literal application. Um, so the first lens is a very high regard for the power of the gospel. And this is good, right? We The, the power of the gospel is what changes our lives. Um, so they see the gospel is not only changing individual lives, but... Uh, society as a whole right so it actually changes the world that's the whole idea of the church age bringing in the millennial the power of the uh, gospel brings God's kingdom physically here on earth so the difference between an amel and a a a post-millennialist is that they see a physical manifestation of God's kingdom not just a spiritual one right um And so that's why they go separate ways. Both of these are preterists. I don't know any, not, which means they think that most of Revelation happened already. Um, Some of them are partial preterists. Yeah, not full preterists in the sense that Christ already came. Um, There are some post. I mean, if you're going to be, if you're a full preterist, you're either R-mill or post-mill, right? I mean, you're going to, but partial preterists would also fall into that camp. A full protest thinks Christ already came back, and they would define it differently. And right, that's like a heresy, basically. No, no. So okay, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm so think of umbrellas, right? So like we were talk. You asked me a question earlier this week about uh, Protestant and uh, Evangelicals or something like. What was it? you Remember. Yeah, so are, are they the same thing? And yeah. well, you know, evangelical Protestant is like an umbrella underneath evangelicals, or right. Anyways, you think of preterist or futurist, right? These views fall underneath the, underneath those. So if you're a if you're a preterist, okay, then you're going to favor either Armel or postmill. You won't go for pre at all. So a preterist, and I mean define that again. Preterist means uh, already happened, already fulfilled. That's what the word means in the Greek. That's so, so they'll keep creating fancy names here. But so it means that they believe that <laughs> the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the end of the Israel age, and now we're in the age to come, okay, which what which is the uh, the age of the church, okay? okay? And and they believe that, so all of Revelation, except for the second coming, yeah. has happened. That's a partial preterist or a preterist view. Okay. So they all believe, so they would see Babylon that was studying now in church on Sunday, uh, they see her as Jerusalem and God's destroying Jerusalem and he right. did that in 70 A.D. So Babylon, the the woman the prostitute who's called Babylon in Revelation they see as the woman Jerusalem as the woman, right? Jerusalem as the woman right but but she's symbolized in the Revelation as Babylon because Babylon is this as we talked about on Sunday uh, a figure for rebellion and apostasy against God right, right yeah no that's good I mean I'm, I'm it, it's really interwoven so having discussions and clarifications is helpful and there's a lot of terms and new terms that are hard to keep, straight so. Yeah, hard to keep all straight so yeah not a problem glad you're asking any other questions or thoughts well, I'd say the, the first sentence about the power of the gospel I mean, it does change and it does you know, right right the yeah so there is a fact right what we disagree with, if I, you know, I would agree with that as well, but what we disagree with is the the uh, ultimate effect, the ultimate end of that effect, the, the the, results. Whoa, that was small. I should have done something with that. Okay, the second lens is the same lens as the Amillennialist, and it's the popor- prioritization of metaphorical over the literal interpretation of the passage. They choose to do it because of other prophecies are interpreted this way. A good example would be Matthew 22, 14 through 15. We looked at this last week. Um, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. So Matthew is quoting part of Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Here Matthew is interpreting Israel as a metaphor or a type or a symbol for Jesus. Um, The tricky bit of all this is how does one determine or choose to use a metaphorical lens or a literal lens? And this is where the whole division comes, right? It's post study method to only use one lens, and I think all the guys that would hold views would say that same thing. Um, the rule of thumb w- should be which lens fits the context best, and there's obviously no consistency on that for Revelation twenty-one through sixteen. Um, so, but I, I think sometimes as dispensational, you know, lists people think, oh, they're just all literal and they they never use metaphor, but we do. We just probably prefer a more plain reading, literal reading of the text when the text gives room for it, you know? Um, and I, I feel like those times where it's clearly metaphor, like I think uh, sometimes like, well, Babylon, right, ha- has heavily metaphoric even in scripture. So I think that has a really good, clear, uh, argument for it being a metaphor of any city or country, uh, city that's, you know, leading the world in apostasy against God, right? Um, but on the flip side, I don't see a lot of argument for the thousand-year reign um, or thou- the, wo- the, you know, the warding of a thousand in this text of J- Revelation 21 through 6, over six times repeated, right? Um, I don't see any into context of Revelation, or in any other uh, extra biblical, to say we should use this as a metaphor. And so that's why I go, well, let's just take the natural reading of the text, and then we don't have, we have problems, but I feel like you have less problems than if you take, say, amillennialism or postmillennialism. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that would be the hardest thing for me to swallow on post, um, post Yeah, for sure. And we'll we'll, go, we'll cover that. Though, I mean, Christian is one of the fastest growing religions in the world, right? And it, and yeah, that is encouraging. And like uh, the uh, like South Africa and Africa is exploding in Christianity. There's like revival like going on over there, and we don't necessarily hear about that. We're in a space of decline. Right. Christianity in the United States has been in decline um, probably for over 20 years. Um, well, yeah, it's mixed All den- uh, like Bible churches, non-denominational churches actually have been growing <laughs> over the last 20 years. So not total in decline. Right. So um, and uh, those are hard things to measure. Right. The two major world religions right now is Christianity. And what do you think the other one is? Islam. Islam. That's right and it's predicted that islam will overtake christianity uh right now it's not it's less than but by in within 50 years it'll have overtaken uh christianity in percentage because of uh their just their population growth when you're born uh <laughs> into a uh, muslim family you're a, a muslim right you don't, have you don't yeah and and he and then they have big families, and they practice polygamy, right, which ends up with lots of kids. All right. Uh, so the case for postmillennial follows four ideas, and we're going to cover those four ideas. The first is the idea of the power of the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eighteen 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to absorb all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Since all authority has been given to Christ, and Christ has given it to his church, then we should expect the church to triumph over the world." So this is that idea that this is the lens that they're looking it through. So that's how they're reading Revelation 20. They're saying, "Oh, this is talking about the church triumphing over the world through suffering, through through persecution. But at the end, the, the church brings in uh, all the nations are reached. You know, um, Christ won't return until all the nations hear the gospel. And this is the um, and they would say until all the nations are converted." Uh, to the gospel. Okay? And this, this thought, too, I think, is somewhat foreign to us because um, in America's structure, uh, we have separation of, of religious institution and government institution. But if you look back at history, I mean, at, at least from Constantine's day, there hasn't been separation between Christian church and government. They've been intermeshed, right? And for good or for ill, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, right? Depending on the power it, uh, is abused. <sighs> I don't know if I should have gave him a <laughs> <this> creaky toy. <laughs> I to yes, I think he's cheering me on. <laughs> so, and then any questions on that? So that's pretty clear what they expect the power of the gospel to do, right, to advance and to just grow into the whole world, right? And, and that brings us to the second point, was is, is the gradual growth. So they say it's gradual, the gradual growth of the kingdom of God. And then they, it, they see it illustrated by two of Christ's parables concerning the kingdom of heaven. The first one is Matthew uh, 31, oh, 13, 31 through 32, and it says this, uh, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like the grain of, of mustard seed that a man took and sowed it in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest and its branches. So the idea of the gospel, the kingdom of God, uh, advanced by the gospel is going to grow into this huge tree, this huge, bountiful tree that started really small. With, with Jesus and 12 disciples, and now it's it's prolific, right? Uh, it's the second largest, or the fourth, actually, largest uh, religion in the world. So um, and they say that trend's going to continue, right? That's that, that's their argument. It's going to continue to grow. And then they take the second one, which is uh, the parable of yeast. He told them another parable, Jesus did, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which... Uh, That a woman took and hid it in the measure of flour till it was all leavened. So it's just going to go through everything, right? Now, I think that this, the the plain reading of the text, is that the kingdom of God is going to grow. And that is definitely true. The catch is, is they take it to mean the kingdom of God is going to overtake, right, and become or shape and mold all of culture and society and government. They see the parables as demonstrating the permeation of society with the gospel, and the, thus the transformation of the whole world by God's power. Can God do that? Sure. Yeah, he can. Does He? Is he going to or does he want to? Well, we don't really know for sure, but I would say there's other passages that would say, no, he's not going to do that, parable right? The, the parable of the tales. Uh, how about the parable of the gate, right? Right? The weed and the tares together, let them grow up together, and there's going to be weed and tares at the second coming of Christ. And, you know, they're all going to be gathered together and, and sifted out. And the gate, is the the gate? Yeah, the narrow gate. Few, a few are those that will find it, right? So... Um, Right. Well, or, or there has to be a large majority of the world that's going to be saved before Christ will come back. Yeah. And and, and cultures are transformed. That that's that that ushering in the idea of ushering in a a, a, a millennial age. Yeah. Yeah. It it, may, it it motivates one thing to like be very proactive in in sharing the gospel. I mean. In fact, I think that if they're staying true to scripture of how to share the gospel and about Christianity being about, you know, suffering at, and sharing in Christ's sufferings, um, and they don't get caught up in let's, you know, make people believe, um, then, then our strategies for evangelism are basically the same, um, but the motivations are slightly different. This would just be a, another motivation. Th- their first motivation would be what they lead with, Right. Jesus said, go do it, right? But their expectation of doing it, of what will happen when they do it, are different. Does that make sense? I, just to be totally honest, when I share the gospel with somebody, I do not expect them to receive it, right? I expect them to ignore me or reason me away. Yeah, I'm casting seeds, but I I don't expect them to say, oh, yes, amen, you know. Oh, let me ask Jesus in my heart right now. Part of that is I'm not. I don't have the gift of evangelism, and so I've seen evangelists like I share the gospel, and people respond immediately. And it's part of that the Holy Spirit chooses to work with those and in, in that thing. But I shared the gospel with the same guy the week before, you know. And anyways, yeah, some water, some plant. Yeah, it's and God brings what the hope. He brings. Yeah, that would be that would be a hard one, right? They would wrestle with that. And uh, no, you're good. Go ahead. So where they, where they stand on yeah, so election is a big thing for them because they're reformed. Um, so they they believe that God has already chosen who's going to be saved. Um, they would just include the, a, a bigger election, right? Somebody who's taken more of the narrow is the way is going to say. You know, it's a lot, it's a little bit, right? Maybe an on would be, an on would be more narrow, right? And a, a pre a futurist, the futurist can be, can really be, believe in election or not election, right? Because a futurist is, just has a lot more freedom. It's like not, most futurists are not tied to the reformed movement. Does that make sense? So they're not tied to Calvin. They're not tied to Luther. Um, Some of them, I don't even know if they know about (laughs) Calvin and Luther. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. There's a lot of pigeonholes, right? And we try to stick things in it, and sometimes they don't fit, right? Wesleyans, which are not, don't believe in election, okay, Um, would be be premillennial, right? But I believe in premillennialism, right? But I believe in election. Does that make sense? I'm not a five-point Calvinist, but I do believe in election. Well, you know, you just have a lot of people with different lenses walking up to the text, right? <laughs> and if I go into election, and talking a lot about election, I think that's gonna take us off of the, the course that we're on now. Um so we'll have to dog you that for another time. No, oh, no you're fine. Okay, so uh, Rick already brought it up. Uh, some of the, what extent will God employ his power to use the church to usher in the worldwide Christianization, right? And this does seem to be in conflict with the parable of the gates in Matthew 7, th- 13, right? Entered by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And it's a very sad passage, right? Um, and I think it's a passage that, that saddens God, right? Because God is like desires all men to come to repentance, right? That's his desired will. Um, but he knows that all men won't. Um, um, and then on the topic of election, you would have to d- be able to discuss that, and we can save that for another discussion on how election works with uh, relationship and and choice and all those things. Quick question um, so on the wills of God. It desired will, it will? Yeah, so that's another thing that's pretty debated, right? And um, I, I, I take the... I, I, I just... I I probably think of God's will in a couple different ways. First, I think of God's sovereign will, okay? God is going to do what God is going to do, and there's nothing that's going to change that. Like, Jesus is coming back. Satan's not going to change that, right? Mm-hmm. Does that, you see what I mean? So that's God's definitely sovereign will, right? Satan is going to be judged. Satan's not going to get out of that, right? The, 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 those who, the, the sin is going to be judged. That's, that's, that's sovereign will, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Desired will is what God would have wanted, right? So, we're like God created the Garden of Eden, right? And and as He created everything, you know, He creates all the gods, right? All the angels, if you want to use the flat term, right? He, all the spiritual beings are created. They watch Him create the the earth, right? And they're His heavenly family, and He creates the earth for His his earthly family, and he wants these two to be intertwined. He desires for communion. He desires for relationship. He doesn't need it, but he desires it. He already has it in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is outflowing, but that's what he desires. Did he get what he desired? No, right? Did he know he wasn't going to get what he desired? Sure he did, because he is an all-knowing God, right? So he desires uh, for everybody to get saved. Is everybody going to get saved? No, not everybody's going to sit safe. But he wants to give everybody the opportunity, and that's how we could decide what that election looks like, right? Um, and we could talk about that later on why I think the way I do. I'm not, like I said, a uh, five point Calvinist, so I'm going to have a different spin on that than they would, okay? The, the tulip, yes. Um, hey, you see, you knew it. Um, but I, 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 I'm not angry at five-point Calvinists at all. I just think they're a little rigid, that's all. And they're not giving, they're pigeonholing the scripture a little too much. But that's just my opinion, and any five-point Calvinist watching this on YouTube or Facebook will probably be making all kinds of comments, but that's okay. Um, and then, then there's his permissive will, and um, his permissive will, I think, falls more into the category of the good options that I have to do, okay? Um, obviously his sovereign will uh, uh, what his will is that I don't sin right but do I sin yeah Yeah, so it's obviously not his sovereign will right but I I do it right and then his permissive will is okay you know um, Jed you can pastor in Papa or you can pastor in the Bahamas right that's his permissive will right and as I pray and go through things, I figure out, well, I think this is what I want to do, right? Or, Jed, you can get up this morning and you can uh, preach on, you, like, okay, right now I'm in the process of deciding what the next series is that I'm going to be preaching, right? I got, I'm, I've got like four or five weeks, maybe six weeks if I keep stretching it like I have been. <laughs> I'm not meaning to stretch it, it's just taking longer. But I got some time left of Revelation, but it's coming to an end right? I got to decide what I'm doing next, right? God does not have an absolute will of what I do next. It, that falls under his permissive will. Does that make sense? Um, there's a lot of good options, and I just try to feel led and, and, and pick what, you know, through the, the community here and through the elders, what I'll do next and right through my own desires, right? Does that make sense? Does that help a little bit? And then, once you make the decision and commit to it, especially relational decisions, that is God's will, right? So, I, I have a lot of couples, not a lot, but a few couples that always come to me, usually when they're having trouble in their relationship, and they're saying, well, this was a mistake. I never should have married this person. I don't think this is God's will for me, right? Married. But you're married, so no, this is God's will. <laughs> it might have not been at the beginning, right, but it was within his permissive will, right? And you... He allowed you, you did that, and now, now you have providence, and now you've got to live in that situation, um, and his grace is sufficient for you, you know? I, that sounds harsh, but <laughs> if you're hoarding, it sounds harsh. <laughs> okay, and then, so this second one um with the, the growth, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging the continuing the faith and saying that through many trials we w- must enter the kingdom of God. So this idea of the world getting to be a better place and, and you know, becoming more Christian and more Christians then what happens to those last Christians who don't have trials, right? Um, and they might say, because they're in an American context right? oh well, Americans don't have trials, so <laughs> Or outright persecution. so aren't they, how, how are they getting into the kingdom of God, right? And yet, I would say that, uh, especially within the last, well, just in my lifetime, I've seen our culture torn more hostile and more anti-Christian. Uh, many people would argue that we're actually in a uh, post-Christian culture, okay? And I think a lot of times we still think we're in a Christian culture, and that's just not true. And we put we or we have I don't think we think we just have expectations of being in a Christian culture. Let's just put maybe that would be a better way to put it. Which causes the conflict, I think, uh, to be more acute in our culture because instead of reacting in love and care to people, we act in anger. Does it make sense? Which then exasperates the issue. Like I have a sibling that doesn't at all done anything that you know like call them out on his issues or anything but the culture has right the christian culture has and so he he do right um, even though i never said anything to him about his chosen lifestyle mm-hmm. he let culture define me does that make sense The christian what what is put out there yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the second challenge is uh, is the parables, and they illustrate well the growth of Christianity. I, I don't think we would agree with it, but they don't indicate what will usher in the fullness of the kingdom of God. Right? Uh, they're just talking about the kingdom of God growing. Right? And it's even grow- and that is your pen quit working. Yeah, Here you go. So Christianity fills the in a sense that there are Christians all over the world, right? And, and, and I think Christianity is not going to stop growing, right? It's going to continue to grow until Christ returns, but it's not going to usher in a peace on earth, right? Um, only Christ will bring that through judgment. That's my opinion. Is growing as well. Both are growing, and we'll get to that. And they're divided. And then uh, in Second Timothy, um, it says, this: that in the last days there will come times of difficulty." Oh, I, think I missed the thing above that that says uh, talks about Pete uh P- Paul and Peter and Jude. Or did I miss? Th- did that not get in there? Yeah, I did miss some, didn't I? I'm going to go grab. I think my slides are messed up. It's okay. I'll do it old school until I catch up. Okay, yeah, so. There was, yeah, okay. Yeah, I missed some in my slides, which is weird. So the thought, yeah, okay, so we were talking about the uh, parables and the permeation of society with the gospel, and that's sort of, transforming transforming the whole world by God's power, right? And then I skipped a whole bunch on my slides. I don't know if it just jumped ahead or if they didn't get in there. Yeah, they just didn't get in there. Okay, so the third idea is the growth of the church through history into the modern age. They contend that the world is becoming more Christian, even with persecution and oppression, and, and they would argue that the gates of hell will not prevail because Christ builds his church, okay? Um, this is that idea, and this is their argument. Oh, we already kind of hit a little bit of why I, I don't think that is right. And then the fourth idea is Satan is being bound uh, through the power of the gospel, and He's bound specifically in not deceiving the nations, and they, that's where they get that from Revelation uh, twenty where t- w- uh, wo- 22, where it says he's bound and won't allow to deceive the nations any longer. Um, they take that very specifically and very narrow, just that he can't affect the nations, but he gets to do anything else that he's been doing. It's just nations uh, in particular. Um, no, like that's where he's not bound. So they do, I mean, there is issues with that because it says in 1 uh, Corinthians that the God of this world has blinded the eyes, right, of the unbelievers so that they cannot see, right, unless God intervenes. Um, so there is issues with that, but that's the, they take it very specific. It's a very narrow binding. Um, that's how they try to explain the, act, the s- satanic activity currently. Do Does that make sense? Yeah, so the nations would be uh, the idea of (laughs) countries uh, aligning, like going against God in the battle of Armageddon, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then they see as the gospel grows more, right, uh, the more disciples of Jesus the more restrained Satan becomes. So they don't see it as a total binding. The binding of Satan and his host is a gradual one done through evangelism. Okay. Um, so what are some of the challenges for post-millennialism? And I think this is where my slides pick back up. Yeah. Uh, first, to what extent will God employ the power to use the church to usher in the worldwide Christianization? Right. This seems to be in conflict with the j- parable of Jesus in the gates, which we just r- covered a few minutes ago. Um, few will, are those who will find it right, and it also seems to contradict Acts fourteen twenty two, which says that through much tribulations, you know. We're going to enter the kingdom of God. And I think sometimes as a church, we forget that and we complain, right, about our own state of affairs, right? And we expect God to have some kind of millennial status right now, right? And become very discontent. Um, The second uh, challenge is the parables, and they illustrate well the growth of Christianity, which we talked about, but they do not indicate. That it'll usher in the fullness of c- the kingdom of God. I don't. I just think that Christianity fills the earth now um, and it's going to continue to fill, fill the earth more. Um, but it'll also have a time of apostasy. Um, for Thessalonians talks about that. Um, well, people, it gets hard and people don't fall. They fall away, and whether they were Christians or not would be a whole debate. Um, but Second Timothy three one through five. So. Yeah, Yeah, the third challenge is the world is getting better, right? So it's not, but that's uh, because of Christianity. You know, I would agree that Christianity makes the world a better place, yeah? I mean, I think slavery has been abolished because of Christianity, right? Uh, uh, Rights to women have been established because of Christianity, okay? So uh, hospitals have been established, right? Because of Christianity, right, the uh, f- poor have been fed, right, world hunger is less, and, and Christianity has been the spear point for much of that, right? And so the world is a better place, but it doesn't negate that the world has continued to become more depraved and evil, right? That's still happening, uh, and it's like in full tilt. Right? So Paul, Peter, and Jude would, would disagree that the world was getting better. right? Now, the last days phrase, I think it's worth before I read these, um, the last days phrase from Paul, P- Peter's, and Jude's perspective started when Christ uh, ascended. Okay? So those were the last days. The last days are now still. So th- Paul, Peter, and, and Jude are not talking about the last seven years of history. Right? They're talking about from when Jesus ascended, okay? So we've had 2,000 and some odd years of last days. I just want to make that clear because that's what Scripture uh, teaches, but I know there's a preconception that last day speaks of uh, that last chunk of time. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says, but Paul says, but understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Genesis doesn't fall into that category. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god that one kind of stings a little bit having the appearance of godliness but denying its power and his advice avoid such people so this doesn't sound very good does it it doesn't sound good at all right and then second peter in second peter 3 1 through 3, Peter says, Now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up, your sincere mind, by way of reminder that you should remember the prediction of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And then Jude 17 through 18 says, but you must remember, Jude says, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Does it sound like it's getting better, no. like their expectation? No, sounds like it's getting worse. And, and there's always been those kinds of people, but I think those seasons coming where those people, will, uh, will it'll be worse. So these predictions and others show the world's not improving but becoming more depraved, and Christianity is being more oppressed, right? And maybe it's not equally oppressed all over the world, right? But, but it's definitely oppressed. In fact, I would say the 20th century has been called the Age of Mottos. More Christians have died in the 20th century than in all of Christian history. That's a sobering thought. It's really sobering thought. The fourth challenge is that Satan is not bound on the world stage, right? I mean, and, and I know they try to define it as just the nations, but even the nations <laughs> uh, definitely are not following God at all, right? So, in fact, according to First Peter 5.8, we'll we are to be sober-minded, right? Um, I'm back on the slides now. Well, to be sober-minded um, be watchful for your adversary the devil plow, prowls around like a roaring lion what seeking someone to devour right so Satan is very active um, and prolific in this age and the church age and not bound and this is the argument again against all millennials right I mean they they talk about uh, Satan being uh, thwarted to to not deceive the nations from receiving the gospel, so they have the same kind of line of reasoning as the postmillennialist. But uh, scripture, right, and uh, and just common kind of fly in the face of that. And I, I just want to remind us that thank God that through the cross and the resurrection we have power over sin in the church and on an individual level. So. It's not like the church is at Satan's whim, yeah. right? Or you're at Satan's whim uh, if you're a child of God. No. But Satan is the god of this world, right? As First Corinthians says. In the world. And he's aligning the world um, against God and against Christianity, right? Uh, I think anti-Semitism, the, the attack on Jewish people, uh, like one of the smallest minorities, right, in the world... I, th- I think that is truly of the devil and satanic, and he orchestrates that. Um, I think that uh, human corruption has a play in it, but I also think that he, he and his host uh, play a role. Any questions about that or comments? Yeah, the parable of the soils would be a better, uh, no, it's okay. I'm just saying that if you wanted to label it, because he, seed is going through all of them. It's cast on all the soils, right? So it's, yeah, the parable of the soils is, uh, it's cast on the path, right? And uh, the, the crows come and eat it off the path, and then it's cast in the rocks, and the, the, it, it sprouts, but the sun comes out. And it withers, right? It's cast in the weeds, right? And Or, yeah, in the fringes of the field, which where the weeds are. It grows, but then is choked out by the cares and by the weeds, which are symbolizing the cares and warriors of the world. And then it's cast in the good soil where it comes and gives forth to 100, 200, 300 fold. Um, the first parable, the crow in that parable, he says, symbolizes Satan who comes and snatches away. Um, yeah so that would be a n- one to say, What do you say about that because yeah, um yeah, yeah, so that would be another good one to to say, yeah uh, he would be surprised he's he is using hyperbole there, so some, um he's dealing with unfaithfulness now at his force counting, and so then he's saying in hyperbole. I'll be surprised if there's even faith when I return on my second time. Um, so there's some sarcasm there. Okay. But if he really thought that the church was going to inaugurate and bring in the millennial kingdom, he probably would have had that sarcasm, right? I mean, I you would think, right? He would know, he would know yes. Yeah. So what are some application points? Cuz we just went over a bunch of information and we have all this bouncing around, so it's always good to like ground it, right? And like launch it into our lives. So first, we're reminded of the power of the gospel to change lives, right? Whether it's to the extent of changing the whole world to usher in the millennial kingdom or not is debatable, but what is not debatable is that God changes lives, right? Uh, he's changed my life. I know He's changed your guys' life and and He's going to continue to change lives and and that's encouraging, right? And that the the problems that you're dealing with now, he's walking in, right? And he's walking that change. Second, we're reminded that it's our mission to share the gospel till he comes, right? That's our mission. That's what we've been told to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, right? Teaching them, baptizing them, right? So that's our goal. That's what it is to be about the kingdom of God, okay? Um, and living righteous and holy lives, right? Until he comes, right? And it's regardless of the outcome, right? Whether, whether it inaugurates a millennial age or whether it, it he comes back, and, you know, judges everybody or whether it ends up with you being gossiped about or slandered or put in prison, right? We're called to do this, to share in Christ's sufferings. And then lastly, we're reminded that he is walking, right? He's walking now, and I'm so glad to know that, and is coming again, right? He's coming again, um, we all agree on that, with you? And our millennials, the post-millennials, we, uh, we agree uh, 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 that he is coming again. And I just say, come, Lord Jesus, come, right? It can't be too quick for me. Um. All right. Any thoughts or questions on your guys' part or other observations you want to make? Or? No, it was very awful, thank you. Okay. Um, I do have one question. Yeah. I don't know. No, it's Good. The Yeah, so, yeah, so first off, when you're dealing with lenses, the first step is to identify your lenses, okay? So that would be the first thing, because if you're not aware of a lens, then you're not aware of how it's shading or affecting the text, okay? Then the second thing would be once you've identified your lenses, then can you try to set some of those lenses aside, okay? Okay? and see and maybe put on a different lens to look at it from a different perspective, like what we just did with postmillennialism. The reason I didn't integrate all my objections to postmillennialism as much at the beginning was because I was trying to wear their lens. Does that make sense and help us to wear their lens? Um, Whereas if I'm always just throwing in my dispensational stuff, I'm not really listening to what they're saying. So that would be the the, the other thing. The other thing is um, like, in the lenses of the text and seeing like, whether I use a metaphorical lens or a literal lens, which uh, maybe more is what you were going for, but yeah, so would be like the context of the text, okay, so uh, the the type of text, right? Um, is, it a, is it apocryphal, or not apocryphal. apocalyptic, meaning is it like a vision, right? Um, and then how is he using symbol, right? in the text and so sometimes yes 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 and then does he have literal interpretation or literal meaning from the symbol in the text okay. right and those are questions you just have to ask yourself okay and those are lenses that you that each scholar is coming to the text with that and he's asking those questions he's they're just arriving at different answers because of different background, bec- and because partly because they're giving priority to different scriptural voices. So like the the postmillennialist is giving priority to the Great Commission. Like, that, like that's like the key pin for their theology right, or for postmillennial theology, right? Th- so they're saying, this is what God told us to do. This is the plain thing to do. And so w- therefore, we're going to uh, interpret this weird thing or this abnormal thing through that lens. Okay um and the amillennialist is saying you know um the they're drawing from more a uh, more homeneutic uh more steady of um, a metaphor- metaphorical language they've actually done metaphorical stuff through all of revelation, like massively to g- get it to be preterist <laughs> does that make sense um and uh and so that's, that's the groove they're in. So they're, they're just continuing in that. Like yeah, conclusions. And, 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 th- and really, in some ways, we just have some different starting points, too. So, like, covenant theology, which is reformed theology, those almost synonyms, okay? Uh, their system of theology um, is God has made one covenant of grace, right? And that covenant of grace covers everything, and God has one people, and that's just the people of God. Um, and that includes Israel and Christians. And um, Israel is absorbed into Christianity. So now though it's just the church, there's no longer Israel. So that's, that's the lens that covenant theology presses onto the text. And I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, the reading of Jesus into the Old Testament and the proclamation of him, that's some awesome teaching and some really encouragement. But that's their lens, okay? Uh, a dispensational would see it as God has a covenant of grace and everybody's saved by grace, but God's means of communicating that grace is different through time. It's different, yeah. So there's a distinction and God's not done with Israel. Right, and so Israel uh, still saved by grace through Jesus, right? Um, but God still has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. So there's a distinction, mm-hmm. right, and a separation. Well, covenant theology kind of uh, uh, conflates as a, as a negative term, but they 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 mix it all together more. Well, our dispensational sees distinct times and dispensations, right? Uh, Ways God administers grace, right? God administered grace, like in in Genesis chapter one, through the sacrificial sacrifice of an animal, right, for Adam and Eve, right? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, God administers grace in the time of Abraham, still through sacrifice, right? He's having Abraham do sacrifices. Right, so there's a sacrificial system, and then he administers grace and the law of through the law, and the law is a grace, right? So you have that time of the law, and then the law comes up to the time of Christ, right? And Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Christ fulfills the law, right? And then Christ is the mediation of grace. Us. But Christ is always there looking forward to Christ, right? So he is continuing through that. He's the, always been the means of grace, but those the dispensations of grace. Now, and in the millennial kingdom, it, the dispensation of grace will look a little different because Christ would be here reigning and ruling. Yeah. Does that make sense? And it, yeah. And sometimes they would say, well, you have God's kingdom just lasting a thousand years. And no, God's kingdom con- is eternal kingdom. This is just a dispensation or a period within his kingdom where his kingdom looks like this on earth. And then uh, in your dispensationalists, not all dispensationalists all this, but you have annihilists and dispensationalists where you don't have it so that the earth and all the, this current world is going to be totally, utterly destroyed, and he will create a new heaven And a new earth from scratch. Uh, I don't think those people. It's not a majority view, but those people who think that, um, and they're definitely not reformed, right? Um, I don't think it's annihilation, but they get that from first Peter, and he has a lot lot of judgment language in there. the, The world was destroyed by water, but God will destroy the world once again by fire. And then, you know, passages like the moon and the stars will going disappear, right? And the the cloud will be rolled up like a scroll that's all judgment language um so i think that it's speaking of judgment um and it's speaking of the powers of heaven meaning the host of heaven the the angel the spiritual beings being judged um and all that set to right and so you'll have a radically renewed earth in heaven like redeemed yeah yeah Yeah, so the 4th century, people were, were very familiar with, with the terminology. This wasn't foreign to them. Um, any good teacher, right, contextualizes for his audience, meaning uh, I read the Bible and I try to put, try, I don't, I'm not always succeeding, but I try to put it in common language for the layperson to understand, right? Um, Peter and Jude and, pa- and Paul, they all did the same thing. Their point was to communicate. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so it just getting a good background commentary okay. would be uh, be a good start to just read that when you have a question or even read that. That would be a lens. That's something I do. I mean, I'll read through the passage a couple times, then I'll go read a background cultural commentary to see what lens does, my Western lens is wearing that's blurring the text. Yeah, sure. All right? Any other questions? Yeah, IVP, Bible, IVP. IVP. Yeah, a background Bible knowledge commentary. It's probably the most affordable one. They have one for the New Testament and one for the Old Testament. And then Zondovan has a really good one, but that's really expensive. <laughs> so, but the Zondervan one has a lot of cool pictures, in it, um, which is kind of cool, um, but I think the Zondervan one is like four hundred, three hundred dollars, yeah. And then, but the IVP, I think you could probably pick it up for like uh, like around fifty, probably. Yeah. Right, and then getting a good translation to read it in helps too, okay. right? And then even a good translation with good study notes uh, would be, it'd be help, very helpful. Um, like, and actually, you can always read this one, totally free online is the Net Bible. Um, it's free. I mean, you can't buy it free in print because it obviously costs to print it. But it's totally free resource online. And, and Dallas Theological Seminary uh, put that together. And it's it's a committee, um, and it's not a word-for-word word translation, so it's not as wooden as, say, maybe ESV or NASB. Um, it has... Uh, but the cool part of that is there's lots of t- uh, notes. So they'll tell you, this is why we decided to do this, and this is why. Um, I mean, if you get it with all its notes and everything, it's, like, it's huge. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so the, the Net Bible, I I, I enjoy referencing that. I this one? Yeah, how much is that? Oh, $100. For cover, for paperback. Okay, so not quite $400. I think, let me see again, just to make sure. Uh-oh, stepping on the... Yeah, I try to pick all his toys up before he goes to bed, but <laughs> then he has fun loading them in the morning. Um, it's available on Logos, too, so that would be a good resource to get it on if you're doing Logos. Um, all right. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay, well, we've got a little bit of time. How about pro requests? Oh, I do have, if you want to watch, if you got time. Yeah, that's it. It's a five-volume, yeah, that one's a five-volume set. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what? So it's five volume set, New Testament. Oh, yeah, so New and Old Testament probably is going to be $400, yeah. yeah. Um. So... There is an intriguing talk about the millennium on Desiring God's YouTube channel. So if you want to scan that QR code, um, it's about an hour. So it would be a good, like, if you were driving somewhere to just pop that on and listen. Um, Basically, it's a pre-millennialist, a post-millennialist, and an all-millennialist having a roundtable with a mediator. And it's uh, uh, John is the mediator. And then um, the three other guys are pretty famous people. But uh, Doug, I can't think of their last name. Yeah, it might be. Anyways, it was a good, what was that noise? Anyways. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> it was playing, Okay.